1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. We are hunters, anglers, riders, and sometimes chefs. Our passion for the outdoor lifestyle motivated the foundation of Harvesting Nature, which serves as a media outlet built to inspire and educate the outdoor expert and novice alike. Our podcast focuses on the technical side of cooking wild fish and game, while also incorporating adventures and lessons learned from our pursuit of wild meat. Join us on our journey of harvesting nature. Hey everybody, welcome back to Harvesting Nature Wild Fish and Game Podcast. And got a, a good crew chat for us here today. So on the line, well, on the line, we've got Corey. Sunny, Pennsylvania. How's it going? And uh, we got Dan. How's it going, everybody? And sitting next to me, we got uh, Will. Hey, how's everybody doing? So, with that said, uh, today's we're we're gonna dive a little bit into some cool conversation about field care. But first, we're gonna chat a little bit. So, uh, coming up the week that you're going to hear this podcast released in the following week we're going to uh, begin a entry process for a contest that's going to be a essentially wild fishing game recipe not so much recipe but photo cook-off and so what you're going to do we're going to create a link for the first seven days and you will be able to enter a photo of your favorite recipe that you've prepared and taken a picture of with a slight description and uh we're going to take all those photos and we're going to create a contest that's uh voter based where you're going to go head to head in a single elimination sort of like the march madness bracket and we're going to drum it all the way down over the course of like 15 or 16 days to get to a first and second place winner of the first and second place winners, we're going to award some sweet prizes, which we'll, we'll announce at the time of the, the contest announcing. But it'll be a cool way to do sort of a virtual cook-off of your your wild fish and game dishes so you can share that with uh, with the world there and, and put it on the competition shopping block, uh, sort of to say, and uh, – see what becomes of it with a chance to win some, some cool swag and, and kitchen processing equipment. So we'll make the announcement at the little, a little teaser of, of the prizes. Oh, you want me to tell what the the prizes are? No, I'm just saying you're giving a little teaser. Oh yeah. Yep. So I, I will, 
make sure that we announce fully what the prizes are, but I promise you that you're going to be fully interested in what the prizes are and you're going to want one. So, um, Justin, if you were entering this contest, what picture would you enter? Oh, man. So I would look for a picture that is both... It sounds delicious because we're going to give you the opportunity to put in the title of the dish. And I would want a picture that's both, both visually appealing and creative and, you know, obviously uses wild fish or wild game. So if I was to use one, I think I would use the uh, Huevos Rancheros recipe that I have. And if you guys have seen that photo, it's pretty remarkable. It's like... Uh, with some ground meat and beans and cheese. And uh, I use tostadas and stack them up. And I've got lots of uh, salsa in there, over easy egg, some cilantro as garnish. Like, it's a really just, it's a beautiful photo that when you eat, when you see it, you want, you want to eat it automatically. So um, it we puts need to, it, puts it in. We need to put that in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll throw that in there. Make sure that we have the recipe to that. Yep. The uh, for sure, because that's that's one of my favorite recipes, actually. Um, I don't know, Corey. Right back at you. What would <laughs> what would you enter? Touche. Yeah, I I don't know. I don't know. That's a good question. Um, for some reason, chili is not the most is not the easiest uh, dish to take a picture of. <laughs> <laughs> I, I made a, a, a pumpkin spice chili that was really good, but when I took a picture of it, it just looked like a dog threw up. So, <laughs> got that nice brown and orange earthy tone to it. Yep. So I, I don't know. I, I I think you could get creative with it. Need some toasted bread, maybe some cheese. Put a little garnish on there. Yeah. Splash of green. It's no rice. <laughs> no rice with chili. I'm sorry. Rice. Oh, you missed that whole discussion where we talked about people that eat rice with their chili. I don't no, totally missed that one. Yeah, it was back like in the first. I think I went on a, a good rant, didn't I, Corey, about it? I, I don't think I was involved in that episode. Maybe not. Well. Yeah, beans are a requirement. Rice, I don't know. I don't know, man. I just anyway, to each their own, but not my cup of tea. Dan, what would you? What picture would you enter if you had one to pick off the top of your head right now? What what picture would you put into the contest? Um, I think I go with something we just did recently. It would be that venison carpaccio. Ooh, yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, those pictures were nice. Yeah, so that came out really well, and I know it's carpaccio doesn't really lend itself to being a great cooking dish because it's basically raw venison. But you know, you treat the cut right, and um, with all the accoutrement that goes on with it, I think that was. Visually pleasing, to say the least. Yeah, absolutely. Nice. So there are there are some rules to the uh, there are some rules to the contest and what you can and can't enter, but that'll all be spelled out um, in in the section whenever we shoot out the link uh, coming up in the next few days after this podcast is released. But we'll make sure we give everybody ample warning uh, before that happens, and uh, I think it'll be a pretty cool contest. I'm excited to see. Uh, the creativity of of those around us and, and what they're going to submit. Because I know we have a lot of people that listen to this podcast and that follow Harvesting Nature that are very creative in the kitchen. So 
it'll be neat to see what they come up with. Cool. But outside of that, um, something else I wanted to talk about. We just uh, actually just received them today, and I was showing to Will. We have a we've got a whole new line of of diving and spear fishing themed apparel over on the website. So uh, we took a design of of the Blackbeard flag, and if you guys are familiar with it, it's essentially like it's a uh, supposed to represent like a skeleton or the devil or something equivalent with like a uh, not a pitchfork. It's more like a trident, a, a spear. Well, ours is a trident, but the original picture is like a a spear tip, and he's like stabbing at a heart. But we did some modification of it, and essentially, it's it's the same skeleton, but he's got a dive mask and a snorkel on, and his uh, spear became a spear fishing pole, which a lot of people notice as like the three prongs on it, and then instead of a heart. It's uh, stabbing a, a hogfish, <laughs> uh, which down here in the Keys is like a very valuable, uh, valued spear fishing um, fish species. Yeah, it's, it's something you want to go after. And, and let me say, when Justin showed them to me tonight, they're super comfortable. They're something that, you know, I would want to dive in kind of as, yeah. a, as a daily rash guard. I mean, super comfortable. They look good. It, uh, it really turned out a lot. So in addition to the rash guard, we put out a t-shirt that's got the the flag image on the front and it's got the, uh, we took the Harvest in Nature logo and we, we created a, a dive flag sort of logo out of it as well. And then we've also, we've got a, a cool tin mug, stickers, and then uh, like Will mentioned, the rash guard on the t-shirt. And yeah, that's about it. But I, it was pretty cool stuff. Uh, I just got the t-shirt and the rash guard in. And uh, I'm excited to use it here coming up this weekend. So it'll be pretty neat stuff. But I think with all that aside, I think we're ready to dive into some intros. So you, everybody who's listening generally knows Corey and I, so we don't need to go into to our detail. But this is really the first chance, second chance you're getting to hear from Will. Uh, first chance you're getting to hear from Dan. So I'm going to let Dan take it away and tell uh, Dive a little into his history and uh, how he found his way over to the Harvest in Nature crew. Okay. Um, yeah. So my name's Dan Renna. I'm currently the uh, managing editor for Harvesting Nature. Um, I live in Western Massachusetts, which is, uh, we can touch on a couple topics there. One, yes, people do hunt in Massachusetts. And two, we don't all sound like the departed. It's like the first thing you get when somebody finds out you're from Massachusetts. Where's your accent, man? Like, oh, it's a very small section of the state. The rest of us farmers out west, we don't sound like that. That's fair. Yeah. So, um, no, I just grew up hunting and fishing. And, you know, it was always centralized around pace to the seasons and what was what was available. And every season came with a new flavor, whether it was from the ocean or, you know, going pheasant hunting, deer season. So we were always very related to what was in season, what was fresh. Um, and it was an activity and there was family and community around it. So that's kind of how I was always involved with whether it was gardens or, you know, people having pigeon coops or, you know, just wild game in general. It was always the flavor of the season and on the table and what we were going to have for Sunday dinner. Nice. And so let's, let's talk a little bit about your, uh, your own personal, uh, website and how you evolved into to joining Harvest Nature Crew. Um, yeah, it's kind of funny. I 
<laughs> I wouldn't say out of spite, but it was one of those things where I started looking online a little bit. My wife kept pushing me for it to go like, you know, hey, you know, check out what these people are doing or, you know, check out what, you know, this guy's got up for his recipe and that recipe. And it, it, it's quickly turned into like, well, I can do that. And, you know, why, why aren't I doing that? And um, basically just didn't do much of the Instagram or the Facebook thing till October of last year. And it was through kind of her inspiration and talking it over that it was, yeah, let's throw some stuff up and see what happens. So then it was really cool. I mean, never really was exposed to Instagram and never did Facebook or anything. So to see that, how many people were out there doing similar things to me and how many people were out there enjoying the same things as me and, you know, just the different feeds and getting into conversations with people. It was really neat. Social media, man. Yeah. Power of it. You can reach, reach places you never thought you could. No, definitely. I mean, I was an in the field electrician for 10 years and successfully avoided computers and technology as much <laughs> as possible. And then all of a sudden I, I screwed up enough that they brought me in the office and then I had to start using computers. And it was just one of those things that getting back into it and seeing what's out there. Yeah, it was, it's really neat. It's cool. And, um, just so everybody knows, what's uh, what's your your Instagram handle and and your web page? Uh, at Stone Walls and Gun Barrels. And you'll see a, a lot of the the videos. So Dan Dan especially lies in. Uh, he does some really great short films and stuff like that of like breakdowns of uh of different animals and and recipes. And we'll we'll dive a little into it later, but. Uh, it's always a good resource and that's actually, I stumbled on his account and was like, Hey man, uh, I really like what you're doing. I'd like to, to share it. And we just created a great working relationship and, and now we're, we're all working together as one big happy family. So, uh, you'll see any of the YouTube videos and stuff. You can link generally directly over to his YouTube page and he's got a lot of cool resources there for those interested in, in the wild fishing game, homesteading, all that kind of life. So uh, neat stuff. And with that, Will, I'll let you talk about yourself more. We already heard some about you, so we know a little bit. We know you're from Texas, which we won't hold against you, but. Well, I, I appreciate that. So I'm from Texas, good old Lone Star State. Uh, don't have as thick of an accent as I should. Grew up hunting and fishing, of course, uh, more hunting. My dad hated fishing growing up. Now that he's an old fart, he loves to fish now, which is <laughs> ironic. But I uh, grew up hunting mainly. Uh, I started guiding at 18, guided from 18 through my mid-20s. Uh, I still take the occasional guide job, mainly guiding big whitetail hunts and uh, some exotic game down in Texas. And then I really got into the Western hunting scene up in Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, uh, really fell in love with the spot and stock game. And, uh, you know, just been trying to learn as much as I can and learn how to, you know, process animals, harvest the game, and just expand my skills as a hunter and, you know, a harvester. Ooh. All right. So Texas is a big place, right? Yeah, Specifically, sure I think they're touted for that. But anyway, um, what bigger than Oklahoma? Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly. That's all right. Um, what uh, what what part of state of the state? So I grew up just west of Austin in uh -huh. the hill country. So uh, real green, lots of big cypress trees, lots of rivers, lots of water. Not what you typically think of uh, 
of Texas when you think, you know, wide open plains. So it was more the hill country. But actually, when I started guiding, I guided down on uh, the King Ranch, which is down way down in South Texas. And then also in a few ranches up in like the Lakey Kerrville, which is real deep hill country. So I've done like the Texas plains, really doing like long range hunting for hogs and trophy whitetail. And then more of the exotic steen up in like Lakey Kerrville hunt, Texas area. All right, so I'm going to ask this to both of you because I ask this to everybody that comes on this podcast, and you guys are no exception. Favorite species to hunt and favorite species to eat. I'm going to put Will on the spot first because he's next to me. There you go. Okay, okay. So my favorite hunt I've had so far is uh, I did a great blacktail hunt up in Sitka, Alaska, was great it was a three-day pack in we had a few days to hunt and then it was a great pack out and uh, this was just at the beginning of the season so in august so the blacktail are up there and all they eat is blueberries and so the meat gets a really sweet taste real tender texture they're smaller deer they're like the size of a coos deer so nothing too big but it was a great hunt i mean gorgeous mountains beautiful beautiful green alpine terrain and uh we we're able to get a pretty nice sized buck and uh also, a fun fact about Sitka, Alaska, it has the largest density of brown bear in the world. So uh, we were dodging brown bears here and there, eating blueberries on the side of the mountains and uh, hunting blacktail. And then we got it back to camp. And, you know, of course, you're up in Alaska, so you have to do some fishing, too. So we had fresh salmon, fresh halibut, and uh, blacktail. So a little uh, surf and turf Alaska style. There you go. It was uh, one of my most memorable hunts and one of my favorite game to pursue. Nice. All right, Dan. Boom. Spotlight. Sure. I'll follow up the Alaska trip. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm a, I'm a big generalist. I mean, I, I go after what's in season, um, but I definitely lose my mind the most over deer season. Starting all the way from archery, going through muzzle loader. Um, that's my main focus of the year. I mean, I turkey hunt, squirrel hunt, rabbit hunt, do all kinds of fishing. But when it comes down to, I didn't hang my hat on one thing. It would definitely be deer hunting whitetail. What, what draws you most to deer? Why deer? Well, like most of my activities and uh, hobbies, food. <laughs> so mm-hmm. venison's delicious. It's pretty hard to beat. All the different cuts you can get off one animal, um, the amount you get off of one animal, and just looking forward to all those different cuts. And as the years progress more and more, you just – and we'll talk about this when we get into it a little bit, but the cuts that you really look forward to, like shanks and tongues – and cheeks and just all the rarities that you can't go to a butcher and get. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, it's a definite sickness as soon as September kicks in of just, it's like, you know, a full-time job. You wake up, your eyes are open. You're like, okay, I got to get out in the stand. Got to be quiet. Got to get over here. All right. It's the weekend. I'm driving down to Connecticut or I go up to Vermont. I hit like four States a year and just really work it until winter. And my job's not done until the freezer's full and we can kind of kick back. So I'm guessing with all that said that venison's probably your favorite favorite cut of meat to eat. Yeah. Or am I assuming? No, nope, that's a good assumption. It's true. That's good. Well uh, I would say uh venison, but that's that's a big category. There's a lot of like you got he? your mule deer cuts, which you know, sage mule deer, probably not my favorite. You know, a good corn fed white tailed deer. That's that's pretty delicious. I'm gonna I'm gonna change your mind this year. You are? Yeah, with mule, mule deer. deer. Okay. With sagey mule deer. So You know, I'm not going to refuse that. I, I drew a, 
a Wyoming mule deer tag this year, and we're headed up in October. And look back down. Mule deer is going to be Will's favorite. It's my mission in life now. We'll circle back oh. to that. No, I'm, yeah. a, <laughs> I'm a big fan of strong flavors. Um, I raise lambs and pigs here on my homestead. And just just getting the different flavors from different animals and really truly getting, you know, just salt and pepper, doing some like simple recipes in it and really getting the different flavors of what goes into them. So, I mean, sheep and lamb, some people think is extremely gamey and, you know, it, it has that flavor up front they can't get over. But the more you get into it and, and the more flavors you try, it's, you just really appreciate those things. So we had a, we had a little adventure this past weekend and um, ended up, well, didn't end up through a friend. Uh, we ended up with some, some venison ribs and I was super impressed. It's only the second time I've ever made venison ribs and uh, Will was here for it. And Oh man, well, we followed, so I'll, I'll say it. I used not a recipe of my own. Uh, I used the, the recipe out of Meat Eater Cookbook. And uh, we used, put the ribs in the, I marinated them overnight. So that was a little bit different. Put them in the crock pot for about six hours with about four cups of pork stock from some of the wild pork that I had rendered down to stock. And then cranked up the Traeger to about 500 degrees and put, an ample amount of of different Traeger rubs on there and some sauce and put them on the grill. I think what it was about 10, 15 minutes, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And uh dude, oh my gosh, it came out so well. Yeah, let me jump in here. They they turned out great. Really enjoying. We had a little surf and turf with them as well. Uh Justin and I went out and grabbed some lobsters. So we had some lobsters, some Florida deer. And uh, we actually had two different deer. We had a, a doe and a buck. And the difference in the flavor in the ribs was really, uh, you could taste it. And uh, it was a cool experiment kind of in the deer ribs, which is usually a, a cut that's thrown away by most hunters, which is actually pretty delicious, really comparable to pork ribs, in my opinion. I mean, it, it you know, it, it took a little bit of work. And I think one one thing we did, so the the first the first of the two deer we processed, and I, I just want to talk about this for a minute, then we'll get into our main topic. But the first of the two deer that we processed, we took, you know how you get that like accumulation of like belly fat on the side that yeah. like covers the couple layers that cover the ribs. Uh, we took that off and, and tossed it in the grind pile uh, or the, or the cube pile, whichever one. And then on the buck, I was like, let's wait and let's, let's just see. And so we left it on the one for the buck and it honestly, uh, once you, it sort of braises in the crock pot, it makes that, that cut super tender. And so you end up with like a bunch of extra meat on the side. And then whenever you slice the ribs after it comes off the grill, you end up with like a full, almost like beef rib or pork rib size cut because of those extra layers of that, like sort of like, I guess like flank steak or mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So it was interesting because normally that's that's definitely in addition to the ribs. It's something I think a lot of people would would put aside of the grind if they utilize it at all. Yeah, but I was pretty happy to to make good use of it, and I, I think uh, Steve Rennell and his crew nailed that recipe. It was perfect. That was so, great. Love I'm it. I'm working my way through my freezer, and um, it's getting a little bare. So thankfully hunting season's coming up but i found a 
rack of ribs that I had saved and wanted to do that recipe. So you're giving me some hope and give me some motivation to try that myself. I I will I will say too, especially Corey for you because you have kids. So do you have the whole section of ribs? I don't know. I don't remember how how we cut them off. So I would say so if you have the whole if you have the whole section, cut them in half. Um, cut them in half and then cut them into like four or five like rib sections. Yeah. So it, it stacks yeah. better in the in the slow cooker and then it's easier for the kids to eat. Okay. Yeah. Cause I, I think it's all one big piece. I think I froze it yeah. all in one big piece. Yeah. Cut it, cut it in half first and then cut off that like sternum bone if you have it. And then, then cut them down into sections. It'll, it'll be much easier for the kids. Good to know. Yep. But yeah, you, my daughter, she ate them up. That was like, do you think you were serving her? key lime pie <laughs> <laughs> so um all right i think i think that's all i got for the intro we talked about a lot of things in our first like 25 minutes but um let's talk so dan you're very eager to talk about this and i'm, I'm glad we're gonna touch on this because deer season is well in florida where i'm at we're we're in the beginning already yeah uh wow. august 1st open archery season so people may take this as a quick lesson on their way to the the stand or the field or the orange grove do you guys know people hunt deer in orange groves in florida they're everywhere yeah Yeah, everywhere all over um so we're going to talk a little bit about field care um basically from the not necessarily from the we will go from the pre-shooting or the shooting but like once the deer's on the ground, like what's what's what are we gonna do? So I'm gonna let Dan start to lead us off. Okay, guys. Um, so basically, with the amount that people are out in the woods, you don't always have success, and sometimes you can get rusty because there might be two seasons or three seasons where you don't get anything. And then we have a lot of new hunters out there too, so everybody's always asking about field care, meat care. Um, so you want to take it right from walking up on the kill. Yeah, let's go. Let's let's paint the picture for the listeners. So, boom. Deer's okay. on the ground. Deer's on the ground. We'll we'll skip over the uh, follow-up shot and all those eventualities. Deer's on the ground. All your tracking's done. Um, what do you do first? Well, the, obviously, you take out your camera phone. Yeah, you yeah. Take a, you take Prop a big gripping grin. Absolutely. Um, hide the tongue. But no, <laughs> serious stuff. Yeah, I mean, the, the biggest thing is keeping keeping everything clean and keeping, for me anyways, that's the paramount above everything else is just being conscious of what you're touching, where your knife's going, the state of the animal, and moving forward with preparing it and getting it out of the field as cleanly as possible and preserving everything as much as possible. So the first thing you want to assess is where'd you hit the animal? What kind of shot did you get on it? You know, did you have a nice clean double lung or is it far back? Did you hit liver? Did you get into organs? Maybe you might've hit the belly. So these are all things to lead you down a certain path of how are you going to take care of this animal now? And why is that so important? The shot placement and the result of, of the shot, be it intentional or unintentional. Yeah. So this is basically going to start your critical thinking on how to take care of this animal. 
So if it's a nice clean shot and you've got a double lung, you know, you didn't perforate any guts. You didn't hit the bladder. You didn't hit, um, you know, there's no feces, there's no urine anywhere. So you can move forward with a traditional gut method. If you have a shot that's far back and that might've traveled laterally through the deer and you might've hit organs, you might've hit colon, you might've hit all that good stuff. You're going to want to think about a gutless method. Jeez. I hope you didn't hit the colon. <laughs> oh, I've seen some miracle shots. It's <laughs> fair. Yeah. No, I, I have the, um, I usually am the one that gets the phone call. I've, I've helped a lot of people out and a lot of first time hunters I brought out in the field. And when you see what happens to a broadhead, that's too far back. It just goes right through all the goods on its way through the animal. It can be a mess. I mean, you did your job deers down, no doubt, but you gotta, you gotta approach it differently. All right. So if we're, we're keeping things clean, uh, from the start, I guess, first off, a lot of people overlook that step. So first off, why do you think people overlook it? And, and two, why should we not overlook it? So I think a lot of it is kind of how I started with it is you might not get a deer every season. So you might be a little rusty and you might be a new hunter. So you haven't had one on the ground. And it was definite thing that you need to do when you walk up on an animal that you've dropped is consciously make a decision to slow down and have an all stop and think before you start jamming knives into things because people get this panicky tendency of it's down. Okay. I got to get through the yucky part that I don't like doing, or I'm not really familiar with. And they just start hacking. And that's absolutely what you do not want to do. And, and I will say too, that, um, as a hunter that's nervous or, or maybe as a, a new hunter that's not quite as comfortable taking on the experience, there's always the option to phone a friend. Yep. If you have the ability to phone a friend, you can, and maybe uh, a mentor or, you know, a more experienced brother or cousin or whatever, like, Hey man, uh, you know, or Hey lady, uh, I got this deer down. Like what's the next steps? Like where, where are we going from here? Right. And it, you know, there's, there's a lot of emotions that go through. Oh yeah. You know, shooting an animal. Yeah. Like, you're, you're wicked jacked up, you know, yep. all that effort and all that trying and all those hours in the woods finally paid off. And it's time to start thinking though, Let's get the adrenaline rush. And I think that's what happens too, is you're all jacked up and you're in the heat of the moment and you're not thinking clearly. Which is, it's fair. Like oh, I said, oh, it it's, is. It's, it's okay. It's natural, but um, the time to sort of critically think. And, you know, that's a great thing about the majority of deer hunting and hunting as a whole is like you spend a lot of time waiting and thinking and the short amount of time is spent like acting and processing. So yeah. you, if you have the forethought to sort of be like, all right, I'm going to be in this situation at some point because my goal is while I'm out here, I'm going to shoot an animal. That's yeah, why that's, I'm here. Yeah. No. So now what am I doing next from that point? Like that's the, the hunting part is a small, is a right. small percentage of it. Yeah. Um, and, and even as an experienced hunter, it gets you sometimes because, you know, hunting at different parts in the U S I, I typically hunt in Texas, but I've hunted all over the place. And, and last year I had the privilege of taking deer in San Diego County in California. And one thing I didn't gamble on was the fineness of the dirt, um, so it would have been better to drag the deer, 
50, 100 yards into a good grass patch before oh, yeah. actually starting the processing. But I was so excited. Darkness was coming on. I had a three-mile pack out, and I got in a hurry. I was just so excited. I was like, man, I finally filled my tag. It took me three oh. years, oh, like yeah. you said, to fill that tag in that county. And I was so excited that once I started quartering everything out, that fine dust coated everything. everything. Yeah. And I've been hunting my whole life, and I was kicking myself. I'm like, what a rookie mistake. It's like take a deep breath get those pictures, enjoy what you've got, and then look at the situation and then make it the best possible outcome for processing that animal. Absolutely. No, I mean, we've all done it. I, <laughs> I shot a, one of the biggest bucks I've ever shot in my life about five miles away from camp up in Vermont. And when I was dragging that thing out of the woods, I hit every single mud puddle, gopher hole, tree stump. I was twisted all around in circles. Like I couldn't do anything right for an hour after I shot that buck. Cause I was just so jacked up and it, it does, it, it gets you. And that's why if you can, if you can have the forethought and the plan, which is what we're going over now to kind of give yourself that, all right, slow down. Let's think, you know, how are we getting this out of the woods? Let's go full circle with it and just mitigate the risk of, you know, your surroundings. Like you're saying, the fine dirt, fine dust, pine needles. Um, if you're going to be in a wet location, what's the temperature out? All that good stuff helps you decide how to move forward. All right. Well, we're there. Let's move forward. What do what what's our first step? All right. So let's we'll run the scenario. You got a buck, white tail buck, or any buck. Okay. So first thing I would do is with a knife. First of all, let's talk about that real quick. You got to have a couple critical pieces with you. You should have a trashy knife or your camp knife that you can pretty much, you know, that's for cutting rope, whittling sticks, doing whatever you want with that thing. Then you have to have your dressing knife. That knife shouldn't do anything except for going to animals and meat. And then I also carry a little bone saw, which we'll get into. So with your camp knife or your non-processing knife, I would remove the tarsal glands immediately. Go into the, the back legs. Where? There we go. You got it. Go, go into the back legs. You're going to see this big tuft of nasty black fur. And it's going to smell great. And you're going to very carefully, if you have gloves, this is the time to use gloves. Go around and remove that tarsal gland right down to the bone. Discard those and then take that knife, wrap it in a handkerchief, clean it, do whatever you can, but get it separated from everything you're going to touch from now on when you're processing this animal. And why is that so critical? So the tarsal glands and the scent glands in the back, that's how the buck lets know, you know, everybody know who he is and, and how big and tough he is. So the stinkier and bigger he is, the more scent he's moving around. So those things are just potent as hell. They're attached to a gland in the back of the leg. And during the whole rut, all he's doing is peeing down his leg, scraping that thing up, and spending as much musk and his odor as he can around. So that's the last thing you want, touching your finished product. True story. Makes sense. Yeah. And you'll, if you've ever, once you smell it, once you identify where that smell's coming from, you'll know it. And you'll, it's that off smell. So once the tarsals are removed, um, you can start getting into what I like to call some of the prized cuts. So the only way to get prized cuts out of the woods, again, is to have a plan. So if you do want to pack out, and you should, um, some of the left to center cuts or non-traditional cuts like tongues, shanks, heart, liver, especially call fat, you need to go in with a plan. Yeah, and those, those guys got to come out first. Yep. So if call fat is a fun, cool thing, I really like messing with it. 
It's in all cervids. It's in pigs. Lambs have it. It is a really neat, beautiful piece of fat that you can pretty much make like an instant sausage with. But it's tricky and it's delicate and some points of the year it doesn't even exist. So depending on the health of the animal and the fat it has on it, it might not have any call fat. So if, you're, if your plan is to get that out, you have to have a plan. You have to have a safe area. You have to have a clean area. So what I like to do is when you're getting up to your animal after you've moved the tarsals and you're getting down to starting to clean it, carry a little tarp with you, a t-shirt, something. Make a safe area to remove these organ meats so they're not getting covered in dirt, so they're not getting covered in the ground. So that's that's what I was going to ask you is like, um, and I think I think everybody can take a stab at this, but um, outside of your normal sort of game bag or, you know, if you're going to drag the animal out whole or whatever you're going to do, do you carry like a Ziploc bag, like, you know, vegetable bag from the grocery store, right. like anything Absolutely. special? Yeah, newspaper wrapper, whatever you have, definitely put a couple bags into your pack so you can put organ meat in it and those special cuts you want to keep clean. I mean, you can't go wrong with a contractor bag. You're going to find more uses for that than anything. Go ahead, Corey. What I like to do is when, when I uh, blood trail a deer, I'll put uh, toilet paper up so I can follow the line of the deer. So I kind of know where I'm going, but I'll put that in a couple gallon uh, Ziploc bags. So when I, do end up getting to the deer. I have extra bags. I throw the heart in, I throw the liver in, um, and, and any of those special cuts to keep them clean off the ground. You know, we're, you know, we're working on saving this year. Deer lungs. Really? Yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's for our upcoming alligator hunt. Uh, great gator bait. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Apparently, uh, they have appreciation for the lungs, which is good because, (laughs) I do not have an appreciation for the lungs, so no. therefore we're not competing for the lungs. Um, but yeah, that's hopeful. Um, definitely interesting. I, I think I want to dive deeper another time on on sort of removing the cuts because I don't think we we can spend a lot of time talking about how to dig into the specific cuts of, you know, like call fat of hearts of, of deer tongues of, of livers of, of all the precious, um, first harvests of, uh, of an animal. And, you know, usually those are the go-to, especially the heart and the deer, the heart and liver, some of the first things that are going to go into the, the frying pan or the fire for me. Oh Yeah. And I'll say, you know, for most stand hunters or most North, North American hunters we have in the U.S., they're not necessarily Western hunting. They're not necessarily packing out to find that animal. And I would encourage them to get back to a safe spot to clean that animal. So instead of maybe doing a, a, a quick field dress or something, but then putting it in the back of the range or back of the truck and then taking it to a spot where they can actually process the animal in a very hygienic place. So take it back to the garage, take it back to somewhere where they have access to a hose, something to be able to rinse off the animal, uh, that's obviously priority number one, because then you can get those valuable cuts of meat and rinse them immediately and process them correctly. But then again, when you're out in you know Western Wyoming hunting antelope or mule deer, you don't have that that uh, that commodity there. So it's things you need to think through, have that plan beforehand. I, th- I think you gotta you have to play the temperature game too. Oh, yeah. um, and I think um, temperature is probably one of the biggest factors out there 
Um, you know, you guys both hunt in the what I consider the Great White North. Um, <laughs> so, depending on the day, yeah. You know, it's true. I mean, uh, I get I get up there too. I guess in the hunting adventures, but you know, if uh, if it's thirty degrees outside in comparison to being 80 or 90 degrees outside, like there's, there's different ways. Like you, you don't have to be as much in a hurry to, to get to that deer and sort of the clock starts ticking and you know, all that. And, and then a lot of instances, you know, there's a lot of theories and conversations and we've even had them on here, um, about it's, it's okay to let a deer stay on the bone longer and, you know, go through the whole rigor mortis process and like all this other and back and forth. And like, do, do you take them off the bone? Do you leave them on the bone? Are you, you know, processing the deer right away? Are you hanging it? Are you putting it in the, you know, in your refrigerator and as big a cuts as you can? Like there's a lot of different theories. There's a lot of way, but like, kind of i think a lot of our focus in in this episode is just a drum down like hey off the bat you know once the trigger is pulled or the arrows released like this is this is what you need to focus on in order to get your meat out and to get it to a place where you can you can further process it yeah this is definitely high level um big topics to think about when going into it um it's not necessarily a step-by-step and how to gut and remove everything but just the overall kind of conscious themes to work through. And you're going to get better at it the more you do it. And that's one of the biggest parts of it is just practice and being exposed to it. Um, I have the benefit of not just doing wild game, but processing livestock on my homestead. So I got really, I got a lot of practice and I got a crash course into it because I was doing, you know, 12 or so large mammals every year. So you get good at it and you figure out what to do, what not to do. Um, so when it comes to the prize cuts, yeah, you got to have a plan. Um, the other thing is danger areas to be conscious of when you're getting into an animal. All right. What are the danger areas? Um, pretty much all the, all the bad stuff, right? So you want to stay away from urine, feces, stomach contents, and gall, which is a sack that hangs off the liver. If you've ever opened up an animal and you see that fluorescent hot green liquid around the liver, that's gall. And it tastes like battery acid. You will absolutely start to spoil meat if you start spilling that on it. To everyone else, why why is why are these five things so detrimental? So it's it's all it's all spreading bacteria, right? It's all gonna spoil your meat quicker, it's gonna affect taste, it's gonna affect coloration, um, and it's gonna spoil cuts. So as you're cleaning your animal, as you're removing these items, you want to keep everything intact as possible. I think this is, I think this is where a lot of people misinterpret the taste of the game and say, Oh, it's too gamey. I don't like it. I think this is where it happens where people aren't, um, uh, addressing those issues at the beginning so that the bacteria spreads you get it it take turns your meat uh turns the taste um so i think this is this is an important part to pay attention to can it, can i tell you guys like how absolutely much i disdain 
the usage of the word gamey. Not that you're not that I'm faulting either of you for using it. Just like I don't know. I I bit my tongue over and over and over on this podcast and in conversations with people probably for the majority of my adult life to listen to people tell me that something tastes gamey or right. gamey or all that. And it's just like, what does that mean to you? Yes. Yeah. So a majority of my life, people say, Oh, it tastes gamey when it doesn't taste like beef yeah. or, or chicken breast. Exactly. Yep. The only two things they know. And the reason it bothers me so is like, and, and I've spelled this out and it's like, if enough people, you know, you've read my work, you've, you've seen the videos, you've listened to the podcast, you know, it's like the, the one reason that one of the main reasons I appreciate wild animals so much and, and I enjoy consuming so much is just like consuming wild meat is a continuation of the story of its life. And the flavor that you get from the meat, tells the story of where it's been, what it's done, all that. You can't expect it to taste like a, you know, two-year-old steer that came off a feedlot. Like, no. You mean it tastes like water. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I so mean, it, it, it grows right back to vegetables even, right? Everybody gets a tomato out of their garden and they lose their mind. Why is it so good? Why, you know, why can't I get one from the store that tastes like this? Because naturally all those nutrients – that exists in your soil because it hasn't been over tilled and over, you know, used over tens and decades and decades. All that stuff really exists still. So you're getting a raw, natural flavor out of it. You're getting what it's supposed to taste like. That's why real blueberries are the size of your pinky nail and the ones in the stores are the size of your thumbnail. It's artificial. It's made to look appealing. You eat with your eyes first, right? Took the words out of my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's real. I, I'm going to start two trends. One's going to be tough meat rules. And the other one's going to be oily fish or delicious. You know, we had a core. We got to put those on t-shirts. Yeah, man. I mean, I don't get it. it <laughs> and I've been eating my own. I live predominantly off of things I raise or things I hunt. I don't buy meat from the store. I, I keep my freezer full year round between, you know, livestock off the back. I do about 50 turkeys a year, 20 ducks, a couple lambs, a couple pigs. And then on a good year, you can throw a couple deer on top of that too. So, from that, I just don't eat meat from the store, hardly ever. So if, if, if we're going out or something, I'll get a salad, eat seafood, stuff like that. But it's not from a snobbish or anything else. It's just something I, I got into and really enjoyed it. And once you get on that diet, yeah, mass-produced meat just doesn't taste like anything. Yeah. But the – man – I, I want to encourage people to try to live your life without using the word gamey. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Uh, sorry to bring up sore subject. No, 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 no. It's, it's good because honestly, Corey, it's been setting, it's been setting uncomfortable with me for a little while now. And, you know, we talked to some great people uh, on the podcast, and I hope this doesn't piss everybody off, but <laughs> it's just like, I, I just, I don't know. It, it just, every time I hear it, I cringe. It's such a subjective thing, gamey. Yeah. It's what you're used to. So if you're never exposed to anything else, everything tastes gamey to you because that's the only word you know to describe it, right? So I encourage people to try meat that are outside of their comfort zone in order to experience what 
is or is not quote unquote gamey. Make sure, sure make sure it's handled well so it doesn't have that yeah. spoiled meat taste. Yes. Cause that would be like yeah. That would be bad. <laughs> if a meat if meat tastes bad, if it smells bad, it's probably bad. But that um, Corey's exactly right with that though, because that's where people People screw up so quick, and, and the quality of the meat goes downhill exponentially from there because you do. You, you spill stomach contents or gall or urine or feces on meat, and, yeah, it's going to taste bad. And you're going to take a cut that people – you've heard from people taste so great, and it's going to taste terrible. And it's, I'm, and it's all about – I'm guilty of that, of, of ruining the, the inner loin by uh, not getting it cleaned yep. out enough and bite into it. I'm like, nope, not going to eat the rest of that. So, so I, I will say, I want to be very clear about this though, that it, it does happen. You do end up with one of these like five bad things on your meat sometimes like feces, gall, stomach contents, and urine, like a slip of a knife is easy. Yeah. Not, not to say that it's the end of the world though. It just means that you have to have a little bit of a reaction time in order to get it clean. So to touch on that and to not go down the, the spiral if it does happen, because things are going to happen. Absolutely. Yep. Are. Um, nature is wonderful in the way that it packages meat. So when you get down and you have a skinned out hindquarter, for example, it could have feces on it. It could have urine on it. It could have some bad fur. It could have messed it up when you were dragging it. What's great about that is you can cut it away. It's only surface. It didn't get into the meat. It didn't penetrate the meat unless you've made some kind of horrible brine, which we won't talk about, but you can move your way through the meat and take off layers, especially if it dries up on it. What you don't want to do is immediately just start spraying everything with a hose. My, my, from personal experience and the way I've, I've cleaned animals and, and seen it, hose is a last resort. You definitely want to do all of your cleaning and trimming with a knife. Um, if you spray stuff with a hose or you're throwing a bunch of water into a cavity that had, urine or feces or something bad in it, you're just spreading it around. You're propagating it, right? So it was in a centralized location and now it could be other places. So yeah, if you, if the, if the guts dump or the stomach dumps inside of the cavity and it gets on the tenderloins, you got to rinse those. There's no way around it. You're going to have to get water on those and rinse them. But for the majority of it, you can usually keep things clean and cut away is my preferred method if something bad does happen. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Here at Harvest in Nature, we are known to cook a variety of wild fish and game in a variety of ways. Probably one of my favorite methods is to cook in a smoker. Traeger Grills has some of the best products out there. Their pellet grills aren't just grills. They're smokers and ovens too. Anything you can do in the oven in your house, you can do on the Traeger. 
You can make desserts. You can grill steaks. You can use cast iron pans and braise tough cuts. You can allow roasts and briskets to smoke all day until they're tender and delicious. You can even use it to make jerky. Their variety of pellets are also very impressive. The different flavors of wood allow you to pair with your meat or fish or vegetables and give it the most flavor that you can create. They even have varieties created specifically for your next wild fish or game meal. So I, I want to point out one thing too is like, um, you know, you think a lot. So we'll look at the start difference in hunting styles of like Dan and uh, Will here because these are probably two examples. Uh different sides of the country you know dan hunting in the east will hunting in the west dan uh generally having access to where he can move his animals to a place where he can clean things pretty easily will may or may not be packing things out so regardless you're going to run into the same issues off the bat the second thing is is you look at just like is dan saying all right we have to move to um you know rinse tenderloins do this or all that and then on the opposite side, we may or may not have Western hunters being like, well, what do I do? It's like, well, you don't always want to sacrifice your freshwater supply, and we're not asking that. Um, something that inevitably may or may not be cleaner, and this is up to the, the, the individual's judgment, but like washing meat in streams, like cooling meat off in streams, like I, I've done it. It's questionable but it's something to do um the other point is like you, you play the game too like how far in the back country are you like you also have to consider like you play the sacrifice game like what are you taking with you what's getting left behind like what reasonably can you move move and what has to be left behind because you know maybe the tenderloins if you a slip of the knife happened and you know you spilled the liquid from the gall all over it like, are you going to sacrifice the tenderloins just because there's no way to properly clean it and you have a, you know, five or ten mile hike back to the truck that's not going to work? Yeah. I mean, in that situation, and I do some decently remote hunting. Um, unfortunately, most of the states I hunt in, you have to bring the animal out whole. That's the regs. So even though you're five miles back in the woods, you got to drag that thing out whole um, and check it. So, I mean, I would, if you don't have water to rinse things and if something goes real south, I would definitely wipe it off as best as you can and assess it outside of the woods, get it out of the woods. And you, sh you should be able to at least cut your way down to something usable out of it. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. And then I really liked your point about how nature packages meat well. Yeah. And that's a huge point to look at because especially in Western game hunting, say I'm doing like a public land elk hunt and I shoot something late in the evening. Well, I can leave it overnight if I know what cuts to pull off that elk. Yeah. Let the rest of it survive overnight. And that's, yeah. it's exactly what you're saying. It's a temperature game. It's a situation game. What am I going to pull out? What am I going to put in the stream? What am I going to bury in the snow? Things like that. But you just definitely want to prioritize that meat. And then if you do get something on it, it's really not the end of the world. No. It's usually a pretty easy clean. Or especially if you've got gloves on it, just giving it a good wipe down with a glove yeah. will do a world of wonder. Because then, when you process it and you pull off the silver skin or the fascia, sure. that usually is what preserves the meat in itself. So, yeah, 
yeah, once, I think that, once that Ryan sets up. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I really like your heading. So look in the show notes here. Uh, bucks are from Mars. Those are from Venus. Knowing the difference from field dressing males from females. And, you know, there's, yeah, there's a lot of differences. So let's talk about that. All right. Um, so reproductive organs. Yes. So I, I do want to pass a quick note, though, um, to anyone out there, state to state, it is different for maintaining um, proof of sex, like, proof of sex. So some states require you to leave part of the sexual glands. We'll say that is oddly or sexual organs. There we go. Whatever. <laughs> attached to a portion of the meat. And some take proof of sex being a head off the animal, like XYZ. Each state has almost a different regulation, so be sure to check state by state yeah. for the regulation. Sure. So um, big differences, obviously, in females and males is uh, where urine comes out of. So that's the first one you're going to run into, right? So if you've been getting a lot of does and you never actually cut into a buck, the first thing you do when you flip it over is notice that, yep, this is a boy. And how am I going to dispatch that and remove this cleanly? So um, basically on all mammals from the penis, you have a urethra and that goes all the way down to the crotch through the pelvic bone and basically stops at the anus. And that's where it's going to attach to the bladder. So what you don't want to do is sever the penis way up high on the animal and spill urine everywhere which happens so many times when people just start cutting into a buck. I've seen it, I don't know how many times, that somebody will start cutting down, get a little panicky or go too quick and sever things too high, and then urine's on everything. So knowing the difference between a doe and a buck in that sense of how far do you have to peel things back and where things come back to connected to the bladder and urine is important. So let me ask, let me ask you both. Let me ask you all three a question. When you start cutting, when you make the initial cut um, on the underside of an animal to split open the midsection, do you start from the rear of the animal or do you start from the front of the animal? I would start at the anus. I start at the rear, the anus. Corey? I, uh, I, I think I'm a little different from these guys. And I don't know if my method is the correct method, but it was the method that was taught to me. Um, most of the hunting that I do is relatively close to a vehicle or to my house or camp or what have you. I haven't had to pack a, a animal out five miles or anything like that. Um, so I take the bulk of the guts out, like the stomach and the lungs and the heart. But like that, the stuff that can cause issues that can cause major issues. I don't touch until I have it hanging in my garage and where I can peel the skin away and, and do it more surgically. And if I screw up, I have a hose or other equipment available to me to fix my mistakes. Um, I know my friends do it differently than I do. Um, but but that's the way I, I was taught, and that's the way I do it, and that's the way I'm comfortable doing it. So 
I'm a little bit different, I suppose. I I too am different. Um, You're not going I, with the anus? No, nope. <laughs> Last. Um, really? Yeah, I I don't know. That's just always the way I've done it. Um, right or wrong, but I don't care. It's just what I'm comfortable doing. Oh, it's learning the rules. Then everybody can break them. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, no, I definitely start from the 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 front of the animal and work my way back. Um, that could be, yeah. My my preferred method is to take the deer out, guts in, just leave them in there, and then get it hanging and skin it, and then get the guts out of it because I think it's hmm. it's cleaner that way. You you don't get hair everywhere and and uh, it's, I feel like you have more control over everything. So let me let me ask you this: Do you hang deer when you put it on like a gimbal? Do you hang it front feet up or back feet up? Back feet. Back feet always. Oh yeah. Okay. I would never. I can't say you don't want to speak in absolutes because then you just, you know, put yourself into a corner. But I find the best way to gut an animal is on the ground. I've messed around. I've been on farms. We've used tractors. You get something up high. But when it comes to cutting into the abdomen and exposing the guts, if it's up in the air, it has a lot of downward pressure on things. So if you want to separate the pelvic crest, if you want to pop out the hips, now you have all of those organs fighting you and where your knife location is when you're going to remove stuff. So I prefer to do everything on the ground on its back to gut it. So I agree with the gutting part, but if I'm caping out an animal, so if you're looking for like a skin or a trophy mount on the animal, it's so much easier to do it hanging Oh yeah, by the rear legs. So it kind of depends on what you're looking for there because yeah, you can cape out the animal and then, then actually, so what I do is I, if I have the ability to hang it off a gimbal or something, I'll hang it by its back legs. I'll start the caping process. I'll actually cape the whole animal out, remove the hide and the neck, and then I'll lower it back to the ground and do all the processing. Huh. Hmm. Different. What's I definitely it? skin them. I skin them on gambrels, but I also break them down into primals on gambrels. Well, the problem on the gamble is once you start cutting from the anus down, everything goes into the chest cavity, which now you're having issues getting the tenders out. Oh, I'm only then, talking about gutted animals. See, exactly. I don't gut them first. I'll hang them first, Whoa. skin them out, place them to the ground, and then I can start going up through the sternum and removing all the guts there, cutting the esophagus and then the lower intestines. Man, there's so many, there's, there's so, yeah. many so many variables into play that would put in, in a situation where you're dealing with gutted or non-gutted or having the ability to even put it on a gamble. I think the bottom line is exactly, you have to know the, the initial rules on like what to touch, what not to touch. And then once you know that, you can develop your own flavor, your own style, and how yeah. you personally yep. are process that game animal yeah um yeah is i I think as long as you you stay away from like the the five like no no's to put it in (laughs) very mature terms um this is a good episode we got penis no no's anus we're hitting all the high points (laughs) it's good very mature here guys thanks Corey. (laughs) (laughs) um 
Yeah, but you know, I, I don't think there's a right or wrong way. I think as long as your end result is clean, safe to consume meat, like who cares? Yeah, and that's and that's the the big point is learn the basics and then develop your own style, and you will develop your own style. I am extremely particular with the way I cut things and move them from the field and then break them down. Been doing it a long time. I got my own style, but it was starting from someone teaching me, right? Dude, man, I, I'm I'm so methodical. Like, like I, I'll do it the same way over and over and over again. Oh, yeah. And that's the big thing about uh, the topic we hit first off was keeping things clean. And it's it's the best way to get the best product in the end is starting out clean and keeping it ever vigilant in your mind to not spread fur around, to not spread feces around, to when you're getting it back out of the um, field and back to where you're going to final break it down, how you're dragging it out, how much do you skin in the field, how much of the hams do you expose. I mean, you want to keep all that kind of in your mind. So when you are dragging or you are getting it out, that you, you make it as little surface area as possible exposed to stuff. I mean, a lot of guys, you get the phone call, they bring a deer over. You're like, how did I do? And that's what they'll say to me. How did I do? And I look, and I'm like, well, I can see feces here, here, here. I see a significant amount of hair everywhere. So you did a C minus. We can fix all this. It's not terrible. But if you, if you slowed down from the beginning and you made a conscious effort to settle yourself and just make a plan, I think that's that's half the battles. Just don't start cutting. Make a plan. Minimize how much you're you're moving around the five bad things and how much you're doing with hair. Because as soon as you start cutting into hair the wrong way, it goes everywhere. And you cannot get it off meat. <laughs> no. So much effort. So much time I've spent Picking. trying to get hair off of meat. Squirrel hair is the but- worst. Yeah, I yeah. you know I'm I'm a firm believer that you can never fully get squirrel hair off mm-hmm. of off of squirrel. Like no, it's just like it, ducks. You just get the grill a little hotter, it sizzles away, it's fine. Yeah. A little extra fiber. Or it's just like that chewy bit you pull out of the stew and you're like, Ugh. is it gristle? Ooh, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I'll tell you a quick one. This was great. So it was like maybe the third or fourth time my brother had his wife over the house and I made two squirrel pot pies. So cast iron pan, cook down a bunch of squirrels, root vegetables, onions, potatoes, carrots, all that good stuff. And then put a pie crust on a cast iron pan, put it in the oven, right? So she wasn't huge on wild game at the time. But, you know, it's a pot pie sitting on the counter. So she's kind of like looking at it, me and my brother are eating it. And she's like, can I have some of that? I'm like, absolutely you can. It's like, what's in it? My brother's like, just don't say anything. I'm like, I got it. I got <laughs> squir- it's squirrels and rabbits. It's like, really? I'm like, yeah. But, you know, try it. It's a pot pie first bite and i tried so hard to remove every single piece of bone clean it as much as i can like i said i'm pretty meticulous right first bite the tiniest little baby rib came out and that was it she was all done she didn't want to touch it after that (laughs) (laughs) it's like she took a bite like oh it just tastes good this is oh no i'm like yeah well that that happens how did that carrot get ribs? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I peeled that one enough. I'm sorry. Um, let's talk. Let's talk a little bit about. So we've we've walked through the process here. Um, 
we've discussed a lot about what not to do and the different ways that we do it, but now we're, we're cutting meat. So, um, I think the important thing that, that you've pointed out several times is like to have a plan to sort of, uh, you know, and, and people, I want people to make sure that it's not like, all right, we think about it, like have a plan. Don't have like a written plan. You don't have to carry a piece of paper with you into the field and be like, this is what I'm going to do. But just sort of just have the, the forethought to think like, all right, quarter, whole, you know, I'm going to take it to my house. I'm going to break it down yep. and then understand the fact that environmental concerns are going to completely change your plan yeah. at any given time. It's the famous yeah. line of Mike Tyson. Everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Yep. 100% true. Right. Well, and, and we used to do a lot of exotic hunting in Texas, your axis, your fallow, even some of your sheep in summer because it's perfectly oh, yeah. legal. That's in it. So I've butchered animals at 115 degrees out. And you have to start a timer. You have 20 minutes. You have 20 minutes to get that meat on ice before it starts to spoil because it's so hot. And then I've also yeah. processed deer in Alaska where you have four days. So definitely just time, place, event. You got to know where you're at, know what you're doing, and have a plan. So, yeah, you got a couple factors going on, right? You have environmental factors, and then you have life factors. So you've been hunting. You have no vacation days left. You got to go to work in the morning. What are you doing? All right, is it cold enough where you can store it out in a garage? Is it too hot and you got to break it down? How quickly can I get this animal from being whole and into an area that it can be chilled? So those are the kind of things that got to run through your head um, after the trigger's pulled. And definitely depending in hot areas and hot weather, big things are you got to get the ham separated and you got to get the throat out. You got to get trachea out because the neck just holds so much heat and the hams hold so much heat that those are where you're going to want to get some good air circulation and cooling going on as quick as possible. And you can find microclimates, just a little bit of shade. I mean, I'm sure, you know, in Texas, you get anywhere where you got any little bit of shade, you're going to drop down five, 10 degrees. hundred percent. Won't even, even having the ability to get the, the quarters, the back strap, the neck, all that off of the animal and get them hung up with so air that moving. they can get air moving yep. air cool even if you drape them over a tree branch sure so that they you know you take a piece of paracord and you tie them and hang them from something so that they can start cooling even one by one like you're you're buying time yep so that's that extreme the other extreme would be it's middle of december and by the time you get the deer back to your house it's already freezing it's uncomfortable it is but it happens <laughs> not to me but the coldest, the coldest deer i ever got was in it was muzzle loader season and um does came in right at first light and they stopped they stopped about 200 yards away and i got a muzzle loader with open sights so i don't have a shot right so all i keep thinking in my head is like oh nine o'clock they'll get up and feed nine o'clock comes and goes nope all right ten o'clock they'll get up and feed comes and goes they don't move it took them five hours to get up and start walking in i was so frozen it was in the negatives middle of winter really? i would bend down to look with my binos and i was shaking so bad i couldn't stabilize my binos and have to stand back up but it worked out i got a shot i got a beautiful mature doe um got her gutted but by the time i got her back to the house she was already freezing up solid 
You got to put her in the back seat of the truck with you with the heater <laughs> on. <laughs> so that was that was one of those things that it was actually on my property, and, and by the time I got it back, I was just so my ass got kicked so hard from the weather and the cold that I got her up on hooks. I came inside, I took a really hot shower, and then it's like, all right, we got to do this. But by the time I got outside, it was like punching steel. She's frozen solid completely. The one thing I did, though, in that situation is, and this is what you got to think about, okay, it's freezing out. This hide is freezing on this animal. What do you do? You got to get the hide off. If you let that thing freeze up solid with the hide on it, you are going to hate yourself, especially if you're in a cold climate where it's not going to get warm. You don't have a heated garage. thing ain't coming off. So I've done enough bad situations and made enough decisions to learn that it's okay to skin your deer out. And it's okay if it freezes solid as long as the skin's not on it. And I cut that thing up with a hatchet and a bone saw. And I've something I've read about and something I've seen in books, but that meat was so cold it broke like like ice or like glass. It was insane. But that was the first time I ever took out backstrap with bones. I came in with everything and it was just I had to break it down into primals as best I could. And then I brought it in, wrapped it, froze it, and throughout the week would take big cuts out and break those down. So so you said primals. For some of the listeners out here, kind of explain what do you mean by the primal? Okay, so you've heard of quartering things before. And professional butchers, and even right now, what they do is they literally quarter a deer or they'll quarter steer. And that is cutting in half, keeping parts of the back intact, and breaking it into four big parts or quartering it. Um, hunters, we, we tend to take out prime cuts and then break an animal down into primals, so big pieces. So on a deer, for example, um, if you had it back and it was hanging, you would take out back straps, tenderloins, all those specialty cuts we talked about, and then break it down into primals. So the two back hams, the rear legs separated from the ball joint and the pelvis. Each leg is a primal. So now you'd have your two rear legs or hams. You take the two front shoulders off. Those are all, there's no ball joint in the front. It's all this tendon and tissue connected. Those come right off pretty cleanly. And then from there, you would break off, you know, your neck, whether you're going to keep it whole for a roast or take some steaks off and then keep the center to a roast. But you're basically going to break down your animal into manageable pieces for either a pack out or for that real quick cool down you have to do. I do that all the time. It's great. You know, I love to leave the bone in stuff. I think that actually preserves the meat longer. Yeah. And, uh, Gives you more options too. It does. And a bone and roast. I'm not going to say no to that. I, I, I will say this. There's been a lot of discussion and a lot of research on um, freezing, thawing and refreezing. Guilty. And, yeah, no, I, um, I personally am completely good with it. Um, I don't know if your guys' opinions differ. Uh, science has proved that it does not affect taste or meat quality. I, I, I was in a similar situation as Dan. We hunted the late season of Flintlock, and uh, there's a big group of us, and I got mine first thing. And by the time we were done driving for everybody and I got it home, it was it was uh, getting pretty pretty hard. But I managed to get the the uh, the hide off and I I put it in my shed, and it was cold enough out that there was icicles forming on my beard. 
So right. it, was, it was it was pretty cold out, but like it was it was dark, it was cold. I had it skinned. I'm like I got it to a point where I was happy. It's like I'll deal with it tomorrow or the next day, and and I went out the next day, and uh, you know it was frozen solid, and uh, but I used uh, my bone saw to get it into the primals, and then I put it in a cooler with no ice in my garage, so it would slowly thaw. It'd still be cold, but enough where I could get a knife in there, and I, yep. I, I'd cut it up enough so I could get it into the cuts that I wanted, and then uh, wrapped it and fro- put it in the freezer. Uh, I don't think there was anything wrong with that deer, as far as taste go, taste went. I I take a very hybrid approach to like the freezing and thawing. As far as deer and red meat, I I could freeze it, thaw it. It doesn't really matter to me. But when it comes to fish, for our anglers out there, it's I only thaw fish once. That's that's a personal thing. When it comes to seafood and especially like trout or your more very tender fish, I'll thaw it once and eat it, and I won't refreeze it. But for a deer or any of the uh, red meat mammals no problem thawing and refreezing yeah it just gives you that direction later to do whatever you want with it you know it's the old saying everything starts out from a roast and then from a roast it's a steak from a steak it's stew meat from stew meat it's into the grind so the more you cut it and the more mistakes you make it works its way down the food chain so why would you commit all of your decisions up front to the meals you're going to make before you even get the animal in the house that's why I like leading things in primals and then big cuts because you got you can do whatever you want with it afterwards. Yeah, and there's the whole train of thought of uh, you know you have rigor mortis that animals go through, and the question is it you know I'll I'll say it uh, I was listening to the Mediator podcast and mm-hmm. they had the meat scientists on there and they were discussing is it better to let an animal go through rigor mortis on the bone or off the bone they touched on fish as well that's why like it's it's better in theory and this is speculation I don't know if it's scientifically backed but to let fish rest um for a certain amount of time before you cook it, which is like straight off the fish. And then it shrinks up super small. Um, that was an interesting perspective. And then definitely the, the meat scientist was like, you should let your animals go through rigor mortis on the bone because it deals with the elasticity of the meat and the tenderness of the meat. Um, to, uh, or does it contract and then relax? I mean, that makes sense. I don't know if you guys have ever gotten up on super fresh meat and cut into hams or anything and actually seen that fast twitch muscle going and watched mm-hmm. it retract. So that totally yeah. makes sense. I mean, I, I've seen it even in like in the gutting, like you break the you break the pelvic bone in the back and you start seeing muscles twitch in the yep. back. Like, yeah, it's it's definitely. I mean that. It's just like you're working a muscle to, uh, you know, like you're going jogging or you're weightlifting, whatever you're stretching, seizing, stretching, seizing, stretching, seizing uh, that muscle. And like, let's, yeah. Yeah, 100%. I've seen it. Interesting thought. Um, 
I'll, I'll, I will throw this disclaimer out. You can be the most meticulous, you know, processor of the meat. You can do everything right. You can avoid the five no-nos, as we're calling them. And I'll tell you what. Very mature, Will. Oh, thank you. Uh, you can still get some pretty horrible tasting meat. And I say this because depending on the region you're in, especially if you're not a native to that region, the animals will eat certain plants that causes the meat to have very pungent negative odors. We have a certain plant in South Texas that if the deer eats that plant, the meat, you can't eat it. It's, it's unedible and you don't figure it out till you start to cook it. And we did this one time. We, we processed the whole deer, did the grind and we were making chili and it made the house smell so bad. It smelled like rotten meat. And it was because they ate a certain plant in the region. So I would encourage hunters to not, especially new hunters, to not give up because of a negative flavor or a negative gamey, sorry, Justin, taste, but to try it on different animals. Because as we all know, if you go to the store and you buy beef and then you buy grass-fed beef, the flavor is in, intensely different. And it's the same with wild game. So I'm going to go ahead and say it. If you listen to that meteor podcast episode, meat <laughs> scientists, they would tell you exactly why that uh, that meat takes on the flavor of food. Yeah, I think you probably owe them a, a credit in the show notes. Then. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, well, I'll link it. I'll link it in the show notes so everybody can listen to it. That's interesting. Um, I've never had. I've never. I'm probably spoiled because of my region. I've definitely had different flavor profiles and animals, no doubt. Um, I bought, I didn't buy, I shot a buck last year that I have no idea what this thing was eating, but the meat was so unique in flavor. It tasted amazing. It was really good, but it, it had some kind of residual, almost sweet, like dandelion-y, like, I don't know, something it was eating, something wherever it was. I wish I could feed it to all deer because it was so freaking good tasting. But it was so unique, and it's definitely yar what you eat, no doubt. Um, I haven't had any. I've never got in a deer, or a pig, or anything else that I've had a negative taste from. I've had some ruddy bucks. I've definitely had some bucks where you're eating it, going like, "Yep, it was a big boy." <laughs> you eat it with pride. I mean, you're happy. You're grinning ear to ear when you're eating it. But it's definitely, he it was a big old stinky buck. I shot, I shot a buck that. When I was trailing him, I could smell where he was bedded. That's how ranky he was. And there was there was nothing you could do. I mean, the meat was good, but it definitely he was a big old ruddy buck. That's not, that's something to keep in mind too with organ meat, especially. That can depending on the age of an animal, organ meat can go from being great and delicious to downright off-putting. Certain liver on larger, older animals can be, cannot be good. I've had bucks where the liver, it was just, whether it was their health, what they'd gone through recently, or just their age and what was going on, their liver smelled like a tarsal gland, which is not appetizing. Doesn't sound like it. No. No. But if you soak it in milk, it's okay. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Um, all right, we're gonna we're gonna start to wind down here though. I we t- we touched on the venison carpaccio recipe, 
But um, so I don't know if you know this, Dan, and everybody else. There's two, two, count them two, Benison Carpaccio recipes on Harvesting Nature. Ooh, touche. Yeah. So uh, Ara Zada, who's been on the podcast before, one of our field staff writers, great recipe. He has a Venison Carpaccio recipe as well. Am I right, Corey? I, I vaguely remember it, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go with the yes. Um, <laughs> uh, and now we have Dan's. So walk us through that Carpaccio recipe, man. Um, okay. So if you guys are familiar at all with antipasto, so it's pretty much like a pre-meal and a bunch of appetizers you have. I'm Italian, so I love antipasto. Um, it's always a holiday thing that would be around. So I did my take on carpaccio. Instead of it being completely raw, what I did is I seared the outside of it. So I took some backstrap off a buck that I got last fall and just coated it, caked it with big peppercorns and big sections of sea salt. And then got a cast iron skillet as hot as possibly can, smoking hot, and just basically kissed and cauterized the outside of that thing. And then immediately removed it and let it rest. Took that, put that in the fridge. And then my other twist on it was I made a bunch of polenta and I made like crostinis out of them. So if you guys are familiar or not, polenta is basically coarse cornmeal that you boil. Same thing like grits almost. Um, you can eat it hot and it's it's a porridgey good side that you can kind of put underneath like rice so when you have wild game or any kind of game and you put it on top of your polenta all the juices and everything kind of infused with that and you can use butter and cheese and it's an awesome addition inside just like a lot of people use rice for the same thing the other cool thing about polenta is it sets up so if you take it when it's still hot you can put it in a tin or a cookie sheet and it's going to take that form and from there, you can do all kinds of cool stuff with it. You can fry it up in a pan for breakfast and put maple syrup on it. You can keep it salty and savory. Um, and in this case, what I did is I took those sections, I put it into a cookie sheet, let it set up, and then I sliced it and grilled it to make little polenta crostinis. So I took the crostini, and then I took the backstrap that was just barely cooked and seared so it was raw on the inside. And I sliced that and kind of stacked them up and made like little hand sandwiches, almost like nigiri pieces out of it. So polenta on the bottom, your choices of cheese, marinated um, artichoke hearts. I had cherry peppers, and you just kind of build up and make your own custom bite per thing. It's something you can do with your family. Everybody can kind of get involved. You make a couple trays of all the different pieces you can put on it, and you have your basic layer and let everybody make their own perfect taste, if you will. Dude, sounds delicious. And you made a really awesome uh, short film to go along with the the recipe, which walks everyone through the uh, sort of the steps and and the creation of the the antipasta dish. So I'm hungry. That's good. You're supposed to eat before the podcast, Corey. I did follow that rule. Yeah, that's good. Us too. There's a lot of food, but anyway, uh, I digress. Um, all right, well, let's do a quick round the room because uh, the, the time has t- gone down. There we go. Anyway. Expired. Expired. We'll go with that. Um, Corey, any alibis? Last thoughts? I had great listening to Dan talk about 
how he's doing things and getting a little bit different perspective. It's nice to see how other people are doing things. Well, last thought. It's great to hear how everybody processes things. I'm glad Dan and I are on the same page and I know that you and Corey got some, uh, some learning to do, but I think it's uh... a <laughs> <laughs> judge much, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, definitely learned, learned some new opinions and going to definitely try out some different ways from now on. Mm-hmm. Dan. Um, yeah, I think that the, the takeaway is kind of what we're all taking away, right? There's more than one way to skin a cat and there's more than one way to do things that aren't necessarily right or wrong. The end goal is getting the most out of your harvest and working cleanly and preserving it. So you have, you know, the fruits of your labor and what you went into the woods in the first place for, which was to come out with, uh, one, a story, but two, food and sustenance for your family and friends. It's, it's what, you know, I think everybody can agree with this. What gets us out into the woods and gets us up early in the morning is going out and, and getting those meals. So keeping that in mind, yeah, learn the basics. There's lots of good videos out there. There's lots of good instructions. And then once you get a handle on it, break the rules. Make your own way. Agreed. I'm, I'm a proponent of making my own way. <laughs> Going against the grain. But, uh, no, it's really awesome. Thanks. Um, it was a good conversation. You know, I, I talk with a lot of people uh, about hunting and their experience in hunting and just sort of what what they enjoy and and what makes them slightly nervous and all those things. And, and we've had some good conversations on it, uh, as of late, especially. And I think this was a good, it was a good, uh, a good chance to address some issues that may or may not come up in, in casual conversation between a hunter and their mentor, or even just something who, someone who's experienced with hunting, just, it, it gives them another point to think about and just, uh, I think, think critically you know like you said dan there's there's no right way to skin a cat but you know at the end like we said uh as long as you're able to put out clean safe to eat meat i think that's that's the ultimate goal and so pretty pretty content with our conversation today it was good but uh for everyone all our show notes uh be posted so any of the things we talked about recipes references we made such as to the media podcast so you guys can go listen to meat scientist talk and uh carpaccio recipe the recipes we talked about in the first of the podcast for the upcoming cook-off wild fishing game cook-off which we'll we'll give you some more information about we'll we'll give links to our recipes so you can see what photos we were talking about and then, as always, head over to social media, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all those greats. Uh, give us a follow. And, uh, go wild. Sc- subscribe. Oh, yeah. Go wild. Man, we've been cranking on go wild. Uh, pretty happy with that. Pretty much like every day now. I think we're, we're having some good conversations. We're interacting with some folks. And uh, Brad and his team are running a great app over there. Go wild. I'm, I'm happy to hop on that platform and interact. So I encourage everybody to take a look at it. It's, I would say it's growing to be like the ultimate outlet for the hunter, the angler, uh, the person who enjoys the outdoors. Like 
this is a great place to share your experience, log time, get access to some great gear, and just uh, see what's going on sort of in, in, in our space, uh, as to say. And uh, after you finish up at Go Wild, go over and head to your favorite podcast platform and uh, leave us a review and uh, punch that five-star button and uh, tell us what we're doing wrong, tell us what we're doing right. And uh, thanks, guys, for listening. Have a good night. Thursdays with Saltwater Experience, brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts, every Thursday night from 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. When you go out there and the fish are where you think they are, any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.